Thanks for checking out the UNI Salt Company podcast. To learn more about us, go to saltcedarfalls.com. What's up, guys? It was a dangerous walk to get over here from like, anyone, anyone have their eyes open when we were praying? See me weaving through? I almost tripped and ran into Mark Cochran. Sorry, Mark. So, my name is Ronnie, like Jordan was uh, announcing. Thanks for letting me come and hang out with you guys tonight. So, my family and I were originally from Michigan. Um, went to school in Ohio at a school called Bowling Green. It was an education and business school, a lot like you and I. Uh, was serving a church there and then actually had this dream of, of going to Madison, Wisconsin to start a new church that would love the city but also love college students. And somewhere along the lines in that story, we got moved to Iowa for a year. And that's where we've been for this last year or so. Michigan to Iowa. Um, I can say from just like the, the landscape and what the state itself seems to offer, it hasn't been like necessarily an, an upgrade in that sense. But I've loved being around, around the people uh, in Ames, and it's been fun to be there. So thanks for having me. Tonight, guys, excited to, to jump in. You can see the slide behind the screen. The name of our church to Madison is called Doxa. Um, Doxa, in your New Testament of your Bibles in the Greek, is the word that means glory. Okay, and so Michael Lisi was kind of asking me to come out here and share, and it's an open week for you guys in between series. And he said, why don't you just come and, and share something with that, maybe explain the name. And so that's kind of the idea of what we're going to look at tonight, guys, is, is this word glory. Um, and what it means, and we'll, we'll get into the Bible. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to be, if you guys want to turn there. Um, but glory, kind of one of those words that, what, is it, what does it mean, okay? Like, it's kind of one of those words, you, you know what it means, but if I asked you guys to give a definition, you might have a little bit of a hard time to do it. So let me explain it to you this way. Um, one way you can think of glory is, glory is what captivates us, okay? Glory is this thing that we see in somebody, we see in a person, and it captivates us. Um, I was on the football team in college, and there was like this ongoing debate slash fight for like five years in the locker room with these guys that would just, they would get in a corner after practice and they would just debate and argue and yell at each other about, it was the same, I don't know if you guys have had friends that have done something like this, maybe a different topic, but for four straight years just arguing about who the best basketball player in the NBA was. Just day in and day out after practice, they're just, they're having the same argument. Is it Kobe? Is it LeBron? Like who, who is it? Just, just back and forth, back and forth. But what they were doing and what fueled that argument and what allowed it to go for so long is it was a debate about glory. Because glory is its significance. It's, it's what captivates us. We're captivated by people that are amazing, that are great, that are astounding. And so they would, they would debate. So that's one way you can understand a little bit about what it is that uh, we mean when we say glory. The other thing glory does is it, it changes us. So another uh, basketball analogy. I don't even like basketball that much. But uh, LeBron James, you guys know who LeBron is even out here in Iowa. Um, he doesn't have a basketball team, right? No. So LeBron James, they call him King James. So talking about his, his glory, his, his significance. I saw an interview uh, one time where they were interviewing somebody on LeBron's team. And he was just, this is basically what he said. He said, you know, just being on the same team with LeBron has made me a different player. He, he's so good at what he does. He's such a professional, all these different things that like, if you just get on the same team with LeBron James, it, it changes you. It changes the dynamic of who you are. It changes the dynamic of the team. And he, he kind of just went through and explained how their whole team is just kind of adapting to what LeBron does, and it's because of his glory. It's because of his weight. It's because of his, his significance. Just being in his presence makes them a different player, it makes them more confident. It makes them try to act and, and be like him, all those things. So you're getting the picture. Glory, it's, it's significance. It's weight. It's majesty. 
And as we've tried to figure out, you know, as we go to Madison, what is our mission? What are we wanting to do and, and be as a church? We, we came up with this statement. We want to go and share the gospel and our lives for the glory of God and the good of Madison. And if we do that, the dream, guys, is that we'd see people in Madison at the University of Wisconsin just awakened to the glory of God um, at University of Wisconsin in Madison and then really to the ends of the earth through church planting, through the SALT Network. Because Madison, it's a place where, as I've gotten to have conversations with the people, they're, they're very driven and, and successful, full of potential, but very apathetic towards God, very unaware of, of his glory. In the same way that LeBron's teammates just see him and they change, people hear about Jesus in Madison and, and they don't change because they're, they're unaware, they don't understand. There is a difficulty to this dream of, of hoping to see just like this awakening of people just seeing the glory of God, seeing the significance of Jesus. I remember our, our first interest meeting we had, which was actually a year and a half ago back in, in Ohio when um, Rob, who spoke at the spring conference, we were still back in Ohio, having an interest meeting about the church plant. And I remember one of the first questions we got really in the, in the history and the story of this thing is we kind of shared that same vision, that same dream, sharing the gospel in our lives, seeing this uh, awakening. And someone asked like, how, how do we feel about that? How is it that we're going to do that? How are we going to see this awakening happen? And I didn't plan this, but almost instinctively I just said, well, it's going to take a miracle. It would, be, it would be miraculous if that was going to happen. And again, I didn't plan it, but I, I think that what I said was true. Because when I look at a place like Madison, when you see a college campus like the University of Wisconsin and, and you and I, it's full of people, full of potential. But as Christians, and what the Bible would tell us is it, it really is like a graveyard of people that are spiritually dead, unaware of God. And our job, our job as Christians, my job as a pastor is to share the gospel with those people in hopes that God would do the miracle of helping them see Jesus. And, and saying that, I both feel kind of confident and inspired, but also just insufficient and weak. I feel unqualified for, for the task of doing that, of just moving to this place, moving to this graveyard and trying to, to wake dead people up. I feel pretty unimpressive. I think our, our logo for the church is pretty cool. We got social media up and running. We had a cool video at the spring conference, but at my core, just as a person, I feel a little bit unqualified for the task. And maybe for some of you guys, I know you're in, in student leadership interviews right now, season, getting ready for that. Maybe that's you. You feel not to the, to the scale of, of you're graduated and ready to move on a church plant, but just the, the task of, of walking with Jesus, of maybe being a connection group leader on student leadership feels daunting to you. And if you're in that place at all, of, of feeling weak, feeling unqualified, feeling like you're not impressive enough for something like that, then I think this is a great text for us to get into tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, because we're going to see the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter, he's, he's writing back to this church at Corinth that he helped start. He's seen God do amazing things, but the people in Corinth have started to doubt Paul. There were some false teachers that came in after he left that were better speakers than him, better looking than him, more, more impressive, just kind of outwardly and physical than him, and they had started to tell the Corinthian church that, that Paul just wasn't, wasn't that great. He wasn't that good of a speaker. They were talking about Paul being weak. And as Paul is, is writing this letter back to the Corinthian church, he actually doesn't disagree with them. He agrees that he's weak. And so let's jump into verse 1, and what we're going to see is, is kind of just like the big idea of this passage, and then we'll take it from there. So read verse 1 with me. This is Paul. He says, Therefore, since we have this ministry because we were shown mercy... We do not give up. Okay, verse 1. Your translation might say we, we do not lose heart. 
And this is what I want to, to focus on for a second. Paul says, even though I'm having this opposition, even though people are, are doubting the legitimacy of my ministry and calling me weak, I'm not giving up. Okay, I'm not throwing in the towel. I'm actually going to keep going. And the question is why? What's the answer that he gives in the passage? Why does he not lose heart? Because he knows what, what ministry is. He knows that he's actually received this ministry by the mercy of God. That's an admittance of weakness. Okay, you know what mercy is? Mercy means that you've got like this undeserved favor. It means you didn't, you didn't earn what you have. And he's saying, God has given me this mercy not because I was good enough, not because I was talented enough, but he's kind of mercifully given me this ministry so that by mercy I could give other people the gospel. So rather than, than kind of bucking up and proving himself, Paul actually just admits his weakness, but oddly enough, it actually emboldens him. It empowers him. He says, I am weak because he knows this truth that, that propels him into ministry, and I hope it could propel some of you guys into just a life of following Jesus in ministry. And this is the truth. And I want you guys to know tonight, God is, he's revealing his glory through weak people like us. He's revealing his glory through our weakness. His glory, his majesty, his, his significance, his weight is something that is actually being revealed not in our strength or in our impressiveness or our ability to speak, any of that, but actually in our weakness. And so look down at verse 2. After he says, we do not lose heart, first word he says next is he says, instead, Okay, the rest of this message is going to be kind of looking at what does Paul do instead of giving up? And I hope for you guys tonight, too, that that'll be the case for you, that rather than looking at your weakness and your inadequacy and your sin, instead, you would charge forward like Paul. And here is what Paul essentially is going to tell us. He's going to tell us first in verses 2 through 4 that he faces rejection boldly. Second, in verses 5 through 6, he's going to say, I expect a miracle confidently. And third, he leverages his weakness humbly. And that's going to be the same for us as well. So we'll jump in and, and jump into that first point. We are face rejection boldly. Let's read verses 2 through 4. So instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So in his weakness, Paul says, I'm going to actually openly state the truth. I'm actually going to continue to speak about Jesus, even though those people don't think I'm good at speaking. But, but notice the key word I'm telling you here is he, he actually knows that he might be rejected. Did you catch that? He says, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to openly proclaim the truth to these people. But there's a chance that they're not going to understand. He says, my gospel might be veiled. There might be a, a covering in front of it, and they're not going to believe. He says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we face rejection boldly because we know that, that there's this thing called spiritual blindness. I want to talk about that for a second with you guys. This is a reality. There are people... All over the world, I'm sure that, that some of you in this room are actually still spiritually blind and you don't yet know Jesus. And that's why he's, he's confusing to you. He don't, you don't quite, um, you're not really being changed by him. You haven't seen the significance of him. And this is the best place for you to be tonight if that's the case, if you find yourself spiritually blind. But what does it mean to be spiritually blind? And let's look at the passage. The first thing it says is they can't see the light of the gospel. 
Okay, if you're spiritually blind, you can't see the light of the gospel. Light is a word that you would use to kind of contrast against darkness, okay? So if you picture something being just, just totally dark, when we see light, that means that there's hope. It means that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a way out of the darkness. And to not be able to see the light of the gospel, which means good news, would really mean to be without hope in this world. And yeah, sure, maybe you have a, a short-term hope. Maybe there's something you're kind of banking on that if this goes well for me next week or if this goes well for me next year or in 10 years, but, but in a long-term type of eternal way, to be spiritually blind means you're without the light of the gospel. You're without the hope of the good news about Jesus. No hope in the darkness. The second thing it means to be spiritually blind is it says you can't see the glory of Christ. So he says the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so if you remember what, what glory is, glory is, is about worth, it's about weight. We love to, to look at glory. We love to worship things that are glorious. And so if you're spiritually blind and you can't see him, it means you can't see how great Jesus is. I remember what this was like, not being able to see how good he was, kind of growing up in church and hearing messages like this, hearing my friends share about him, opening up my Bible and just not seeing what the point is. Again, if that, if that is you tonight, this is the best place you could be because you're going to get to hear a lot about him tonight. But to be spiritually blind means you, maybe you hear the name of Jesus, maybe you don't, but you, you don't see his glory. And therefore, there's no ultimate satisfaction for the deepest longings of your heart. Uh, 500 years ago, people were still facing this same type of, of challenge. There was a pastor named John Calvin who said this about this challenge of, of not seeing the glory of Christ, but still needing to be satisfied. This is what he said. He said, Our lust is furious and our greed is limitless in pursuing wealth and honors, chasing after power, heaping up riches, and gathering all those vain things which seem to give us grandeur and glory. Limitless, pursuing wealth and honors, chasing after power. I wonder if that sounds at all like, like any of your lives or of the lives of people you know. Just kind of this, this endless pursuit of something that will fill that, that hole that's inside of us. Something that'll satisfy. Something that's going to make us feel, feel whole. That's what, that's what life is like if you, if you are blind and you can't see the glory of Christ. You can't see his significance and you're not able to be satisfied by him. The last thing it means, if you catch it, it says he is the image of God. So they can't see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This means that they're without purpose because they don't know their creator. If you're spiritually blind, you, can't, you, you hear the name of Jesus, you hear about Jesus, you hear a sermon, whatever it is, and you're not able to make the connection. You can't see that this is, in fact, God, your creator, who loves you and made you with a purpose. And if you don't know who made you, you don't know your identity, and you don't know what purpose you were made for, and you're, you're left with trying to create that for yourself, and it's a frustrating existence. And again, I'm not, I'm not denying that we can't kind of temporarily create a, a purpose for ourselves. I was actually hanging out with a student um, at the University of Wisconsin a couple weeks ago, and his, his life had been going fine up until this point, but through a series of, of bad breakups and, and struggles in school just with tests and homework piling up and kind of starting to feel like he, he wasn't going to be able to make it. He was just at kind of like a rock bottom moment in his life. And as I was talking to him, he, he said something that struck me. He's like, you know, I've, I've always felt like I kind of had my, my life together. and I knew what direction I was going. But as thing after thing in my life started to get stripped away, so relationships, job opportunities, school, family dynamic, all these different things, he was left feeling like, I'm not completely sure what 
what the point of this is or what my purpose is. And so he went on to explain he's in this kind of quest for purpose right now. He's not, he's not quite sure what his purpose is because all these things that had given him purpose uh, apart from his creator have been taken away. And that's what it's like to be spiritually blind. You don't know your creator. You don't see that Jesus is, is the image of God. There was a, a movie that came out, uh, I think like a, a year or so ago, and it was about this guy named, named Percy that went and looked in the jungle for a lost civilization. It was called The Lost Land of Z. Not that many people have seen it, so don't feel bad if you haven't. I'll kind of tell the story a little bit for you. Um, but I went, saw it in theaters, and here's kind of like the, the basic plot line of what was going on. So he had like a ruined family name. His, his family's reputation had been tarnished, and so he was like a man in search of an identity. He wanted to make a name for himself. He had a kind of a low-level job in the, the British military and didn't seem like he had much upward mobility. And so as he was kind of struggling to figure out, like, how am I going to make a name for myself? How am I going to find my purpose in life? An opportunity came up to go be like an explorer in the Amazon jungle to look for a lost civilization. So long story short, he takes the opportunity, and the whole movie is just the story of how he relentlessly is pursuing uh, this, this hidden civilization of people in the jungle. And it's kind of like always out of his grasp. Like it'll lead up in suspense where he, he almost finds them, and then like somebody gets really sick, and they have to pack up and leave. And then he goes back and gets healthy, and a couple years later comes back, and it's just back and forth, back and forth, just this frustrating cycle of reaching out and trying to, to find this group of people that he thought would make him famous, give him an identity and give him purpose. And he's never quite able to do it, and he neglects his family. He sacrifices decades of his life watching his kids grow up in pursuit of this purpose and in pursuit of, of an identity to make a name for himself. And there's this point in the movie where like, his sidekick um, is talking to him, and his sidekick has been with him on all these missions, and he's seen it all. They, he's seen how they've come so close but haven't quite found these, this lost group of people yet. Um, the sidekick's name was Henry, and Henry's kind of deciding to pack it up and go home because he just doesn't see the point anymore. This is their conversation. Henry says, This search for Z, that's the name of the place they're looking for, I can no longer bear the cost. Percy said, Have you come to doubt its existence? And then Henry said, no, I only doubt that Z provides all the answers that you seek from it. He didn't doubt that like maybe this thing existed, but he had seen the way that, that Percy was relentlessly pursuing this, this dream and this search for an identity and this search for purpose that he was never able to grasp. He had saw, saw the cost of what it had taken him, and he had begun to doubt that he was ever really going to find what he was looking for. And guys, this is, this is the plight of the, of the spiritually blind. This is what Paul is saying. They're, they're perishing. They can't see what they were made for. They can't see who's going to give them ultimate satisfaction. And I wonder if, there, if there's any of you in here tonight, if, if any of that just caught something in your heart where you realize you've been searching for purpose, you've been searching for an identity, you've been searching for satisfaction, and maybe you found it shortly, but you've had it taken away. What Paul says in light of this is that we face rejection by actually just making an open display of the truth. The job of the Christian isn't to, to raise the dead, but to actually just say, hey, I was once blind, and now I can see. Let me help see you see. Just look, look at Jesus. And so for those of you that, that have like a, a fear of rejection, a fear of telling your roommate, a fear of telling your friend, a fear of telling your family member about Jesus, I want to help shift you away from that fear and from viewing them as, as someone that you're being rejected by, and, and rather take Paul's words here of this is someone who is perishing and spiritually blind, 
and be moved with compassion towards them. Don't fear them. Love them. They're, they're oppressed. They're blind. And rather than fearing their rejection, we need to, to move towards them confidently with the gospel. And so how is it that we do that? How are we going to move from a place of fear and, and move to a place of compassion for people? What do we do? That's the second thing that Paul brings us to. So look at verses 5 and 6. He says this, For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So we expect a miracle confidently. Even as we face rejection and we know that that might happen because people can't see Jesus, we expect that God might do a miracle and we expect that confidently. So if you notice what he said at the beginning, he says we, we don't proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Christ. And we do it as, as your servants for God's sake. Okay, Paul has removed himself from the equation. He's, he's basically just forgotten about himself and that's what we need to do as well. We need to, to be the servant of other people for God's sake, expecting that God would do the miracle of bringing new life. Do you catch the language that he used in, in verse five or in verse six? He said, "For God who said, "Let light shine out of darkness." Do you see how there's quotes around that in, in your Bibles? That is a, a reference actually to, to Genesis chapter one, when God created the world. He says he's going to shine light in our hearts in the same way that at the beginning of time, when there was nothing but darkness. He said, let there be light, and then the miracle of the universe being created happen. He's making a parallel between the, the darkness of our hearts when we're spiritually blind and then the darkness at the beginning of the world. Do you see what that means? The same powerful act that God used to create the universe is what happens when he makes a Christian. When we speak the gospel to people, when we proclaim Christ and not ourselves, and we tell people about Jesus, we expect that the miracle of God bringing new life will happen because the same power that created the universe attends to our words. That's crazy. Bring those two things together. We proclaim Christ, God creates new life. And what is it that they see? Did you guys see that in verse 6? It says they see the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. When God does the miracle, that's what happens in the heart. Where before the heart couldn't see, it was, it was spiritually blind now God allows them to see the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. In the face. That's the, that's the interesting part of this for me. This is the face of Jesus. Why the face? Think about it. So the face of a person is what really tells us how they feel about us. It's how you get to know somebody. Imagine trying to be friends with somebody and you can never see their face. There's so much we could never learn. And what Paul's saying here is that when God shines the light in our hearts, just like when he created the universe, he allows us to see the face of Jesus in a new way. We see the knowledge of God's glory, his significance, in his face. The face. There's an author named, named C.S. Lewis. Uh, actually, early on in, in my life walking with Jesus, I read a, a book by his called The Weight of Glory. And he says this better, better than I could. But he's talking about what happens when we, when we see the face of Jesus and everything changes. This is what he says. He says, in the end, that face, he's talking about Jesus' face, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us. 
The face that is the delight or terror of the universe must be turned on each of us in the end. He's saying that there, there is coming a day where even though we don't see God's face now, he's, he, it has, he has to look at us. He has to, to judge us because whether we know it or not, we're his creation. And there's coming a day where he's going to look at us. And the good news of the gospel is when he shines the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we don't see his displeasure as we might expect in our sin. We don't see punishment, but we actually see grace and mercy. This is how Lewis explains the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He says, The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination. You know what he's talking about when he says that examination? Have you ever been in a relationship with somebody where you're so ashamed of what you've done, whether it's to them or somebody else, that it's hard to look at them in the face? It's that examination moment where like, you just can't quite look at them in the eye. It's hard to make eye contact. That's what Lewis is talking about, but, but with God. And he's saying that some of us, actually any of us that really chooses, shall actually survive that examination. We shall find approval. We shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, like an artist delights in his work. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Do any of you guys struggle with that? I'm talking, so Christians in the room, that, that it's not just that God kind of like loves you in this general sense where he's like, you know, my son died for you. I'm kind of obligated to let you into my family, but he actually like, he actually likes you. He, he delights in you. Do you hear what I'm saying? Not, not just in a general sense where he's like kind of supposed to love you because that's the way it works, but he, he actually like moved towards you. His face, he looks at you with his face and he's not disappointed. He looks at you with his face and he's showing you mercy and grace. He looks at you, Lewis says, like an artist delights in his work. It seems impossible because we know we're sinful. We know we're sinners. We, we know that this, this shouldn't be a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Why? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. You guys know what was happening at the cross? You remember Jesus, what, why he was in such agony at the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you read the gospel accounts, Jesus lives in like this perfect relationship with his father all the way to the cross, like, like perfectly, like praying so much, praying so deeply, being, being so righteous. He's, he's totally sinless. And then he gets to the cross and all of a sudden God completely turns his back on him. He loses the face of God. God turns away and Jesus can no longer not only see the face of God smiling on him, but God has, has turned his back. Jesus lost the pleasure of God. He lost God's face so that we could get it. God smiles at us because he looked down on Jesus in judgment at the cross. That's the gospel. That's why Lewis is saying it, it doesn't make sense. It seems impossible. Like, like God would not just uh, kind of generally accept me without looking at me, but he would, he would look me in the face, in the eyes, and accept me and welcome me home and say, you're perfect, you're spotless, you're blameless. It's because of what Jesus did at the cross. That's the type of thing that when, when the light of the gospel of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ shines in your heart, that's what you see. You start to, to believe that. You see his face looking at you with grace. Here's some other things that, that Lewis, Lewis says. I just want to do a couple of, of what it's like when you, 
when you see the face of Jesus, maybe you're sitting there wondering, like, have I, have I seen it? Do I, I'm trying to evaluate, like, am I, am I in on this? Maybe, maybe some of these things will resonate. He says it's like the door we've been knocking on all of our lives has been opened at last. That imagery, the, the door we've been knocking on all of our lives, these things we've been persistently chasing our whole lives. What do you guys think you're looking for on social media? Why are we just relentlessly posting and clicking and checking and hoping and checking our email and all these things? We're, we're just knocking on the door to see, like, does somebody approve of what I'm doing? Does somebody like what I just posted? Constantly. But it, it constantly eludes us, right? Whatever it is for you. Maybe it's not social media, but, but the door that you've been knocking on your whole life it's like it opens up and you're welcomed in when you see the face of Jesus, the glory of God. He also calls it the healing of the old ache. Okay, the healing of the old ache. Some of you guys, there, you have this, you don't even necessarily know how to maybe explain it to yourself or to God in prayer or especially to your friends, but there's just kind of like this, this low-grade anxiety, like just, just this, this feeling inside of you that, that you're going to somehow miss out on, on something, whether, whether it's joy or it's love or it's relationship, like you're, you're going gonna to be screwed in the end. This, this old ache that like, like I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to have everything I need. You're kind of always looking over your shoulder, expecting something bad to happen to you. You know, why do you think you, you work so hard at your, at your exercise plan to, to perfect your body or, or obsessive studying? Like, this, this kind of old ache that like you're not quite there and you constantly need to improve. Seeing the face of Jesus, when God does that into your heart, just like when he created the universe, he, he sees you and he changes you with a look. He changes you. Even if it's just small at the beginning and continues to change you more and more, but he begins to heal that old ache of insecurity that we all carry. Lewis calls it being united with the beauty that we see. United with beauty. So some of you guys love, love movies, you love music, you love art. Um, you get caught up in, in stories and songs, and, and maybe you, you listen for hours or you binge watch shows because you just, it's almost like you, you wish that somehow real life could be more like what's happening in, the, in those things because what you're seeing is beauty. You're seeing art. You're seeing human creativity that, that we're able to create, but we, we can never quite touch it. Have you ever had that thing happen where you're, you're watching the movie and you, you get sucked in, but then it it's over and it turns off and the screen is black and you're kind of just left feeling like, was that even real? Like, did something more, more magical happen than just like electrons and stuff like firing and making photons? And I'm, just, I'm making up words at this point of how, I don't know how technology works. But what I'm, what I'm saying is, is it all just artificial or is there something more there? Is it? Is there, is, is there any such thing as, as magic or, or real spirituality? Like, is, is this all just made up? Am I just a collection of, like when I go to a wedding and I see them commit to each other forever and I see that, like, the, the, are goosebumps just biology or is there, is there something else out there? Lewis says when you see the face of Jesus, when you understand the gospel, it's like we get united to the beauty that we see. I remember when, when the gospel light went on for me. I remember being, being totally apathetic towards God Reading, reading the Bible a little bit, hearing, hearing about Jesus, knowing kind of some disconnected things about him, but just never having it fully come home to me. And then I remember what it was like to be compelled. I remember what it was like to see Jesus and being like, how did I not see Jesus? How did I not see this? How did I, how did I think that my sin could keep me from him when I looked at the cross? Guys, the good news of the gospel is that in the face of Jesus, 
We see him, he sees us, he accepts us, and he fulfills all of our longings. And that's something that happens in our heart. And maybe for you tonight, you're kind of sitting here and you heard me list off those things and you're like, I, just, I can't muster that up. I can't create that. I don't, I, can't, I don't know how you're wanting me to make these feelings up about Jesus. I, I really want to. I would say to you that, that you're in a good spot if you're leaning in towards that and you need to wait for the miracle to happen. Keep thinking about Jesus. Talk to your friends about Jesus. Listen to the words that I'm telling you about the gospel. It's not something that you have to do to yourself. Remember, God created the universe by saying, let there be light. And that's what he can do in your heart. He can let you see Jesus. The last thing that, that Paul wants us to, to do, instead of giving up, is he wants us to leverage our weakness in humility. So look at verse 7. This is our last verse together tonight. He says, Now we have this treasure in jars of clay, jars of clay, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Okay, so we face rejection boldly, knowing that, that some may not believe but we expect a miracle as we confidently proclaim the gospel as we speak about Jesus. And then we do all this by not hiding our weakness, but actually leveraging it in humility. He uses this imagery of, of jars of clay. So in, in this time, a, a jar of clay, a clay pot, would have actually often been used like a garbage can or a toilet. And so they would have put their, their trash in it. It was just like a common piece of pottery, okay? So he's saying, human beings, you guys, you're like, you're like a, a common piece of pottery, a trash can, a toilet. And he's not necessarily meaning to be degrading to us, but he's trying to, to say, like, you are in a very humble, lowly, weak position. But you see what else he says. You see the contrast. He says, we have this treasure, this treasure in jars of clay. We have treasure in a trash can, treasure in a toilet. The treasure he's talking about is, is the gospel. It's what we've been talking about, the, this knowledge of the glory of God and Jesus. We as, as Christians are nothing but jars of clay, but we, we contain the most amazing, beautiful, profound, magnificent truth in the universe, and that is that God in Jesus Christ looks at us in our sin, and he forgives us because of the cross. So we need to realize, guys, that we're actually we're more important than we think, okay? For, for you insecure people, you're actually way more important than you think. You're, you are a clay pot, but you have the treasure of the gospel, and so let that give you confidence. And for those of you that are, that are less on the insecure side, but maybe the, the superiority, prideful side, you're much less important than you think. You have the gospel, but you're a clay pot. You're broken. And we need to learn to, to be these, these clay pots with treasure, leveraging our weakness so that other people could see Jesus. So we, we confess our sins we share our stories, open up our lives to people so they can see our weak spots and not just our strengths. And, and in doing all this, we proclaim the treasure and we show people the treasure. And like he said, it's, it's not about us, but we're serving people for God's sake, proclaiming the gospel in the midst of our brokenness. And guys, that's our heart with Doxa. Okay, not our glory, but his. The, the name Doxa isn't about uh, an awesome church necessarily. That's not why we, the glory we're talking about. We, like Paul, we know that, that this ministry we've been given is, is by the mercy of God. And it's because I know that my life that I've, I've been given, my life in Christ, the, the ability for me to stand up here and, and see things in this book when years ago I couldn't is not because I got smarter or I got more talented. It's because God did a miracle. He, he shined the light of the gospel in my heart, and I once was blind, 
and now I can see. And so as one broken clay pot, talking to, to you guys who are also broken clay pots, I want to encourage you and spur you on to tell others about the treasure that we've received. Face rejection with boldness, expect miracles confidently, and, and leverage your weakness humbly. And all glory goes to Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We just want to pause in, in, in humility before you and even consider these things that you've shown us tonight. God, just the glory of Christ. We could never in, in, in 40 minutes or so tap into all that is there, but I pray that, that, that something would have happened in our hearts tonight to, to see you more clearly. We thank you for the gospel. God, I pray for all the, the rumblings and things that are happening in our hearts right now as we as we think about our weakness and how you want to display your glory through it, I pray that as we sing, you just let it come out. God, as clay pots, we could sing about the treasure we've received and you would be honored and glorified and we would be healed. God, healed more and more from that old ache of, of insecurity. I pray that we'd be united more with the beauty that we've seen all of our lives as we sing to you now. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. This has been a message from The Salt Company. We'd love for you to join us Thursday nights at 8 p.m. at Kindeo Church in Cedar Falls.